Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that through your word, you would give us grace to trust Christ more. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us people who delight ourselves in you. And we pray that that would sustain us through every disappointment we face, through every struggle, every trial, every challenging circumstance. Lord, make us people who delight ourselves in you, who rest in you and wait on you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you deal with disappointment? We all face it. I think one of the hardest kinds of disappointments that we face are those times when, when maybe someone who's a, a peer, maybe somebody that we went to school with, I was talking with a brother dealing with this just this week, um, he, he went to school and coached with a man who's going to be co- coaching the national championship football um, game tomorrow night. And uh, just, to, just before that man's career took off, my friend got out of coaching. And, and now he's looking at his former teammate, former classmate, uh, former co-graduate assistant, and he's looking where he is, and he's, and he's finding discontentment in his heart. And he's finding envy. We, we all face things like this, don't we? Maybe, maybe you're desiring to be pregnant, and all your friends keep turning up pregnant. Maybe you desire to have influence, to, to be able to, to, to uh, minister to people or to, to influence people for the good, and all your friends wind up with influence or position or power or health or success or wealth or whatever kind of satisfaction it may be. In Psalm 37, you know, imagine, imagine if you had the opportunity to meet King David. On our, on our Kenwood um, um, directory, there's this uh, person you'd like to have a dinner with. Imagine you had the opportunity to have dinner with King David, and, and you got the opportunity to hear what he would say to you. And what we have before us is King David speaking to us in our discontentment speaking to us in our frustration and disappointment. Uh, This psalm, Psalm 37, is going to set two ways before us. There's one way that leads to being cut off from the land, and the other way leads to inheriting the land. And these, these two ideas, being cut off from the land and inheriting the land, they're working with this idea, this idea that Old Testament Israelites dealt with, where they came out of Egypt, then they came into the promised land, and the idea was they were going to live with God in this place that he had granted to them. And one way of life would, would lead to being destroyed and no longer enjoying the land that God gave to you. The other way of life would lead to Uh, being rooted in that land and watered and nourished and flourishing in it. Those two ways are before us here in Psalm 37. If you look at your bulletin, there's an outline there. 
And what we're going to see is that the beginning part of the psalm corresponds to the end of the psalm, and then the middle parts also correspond to one another, and everything's going to focus, everything's going to center on verse 22. Look at, look at verse 22. This is the main point of Psalm 37. Those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. You don't want to be cut off from the land. You, do, you want to inherit the land. So how? Here's, here's King David telling us, here's how you live in such a way that you inherit the land. In verses 1 through 11, and then in verses 34 through 40, 40 David's going to tell us the outcomes for the righteous and the wicked. Last, last week I, I said we have to look not at what sin offers, but at what sin costs us. And in this psalm, David's going to talk to us about what sin costs us. David knows us. He, he knows people. And he knows that, there, there, that righteous people tend to respond in two ways when they see the wicked prosper. The wicked start prospering. They start to flourish. And, and one tendency that, that righteous people have is we get mad. We get angry. It shouldn't be this way. That guy's a scoundrel. That guy is a criminal. Why isn't he in jail? What does he have? What business does he have on the news? Why does anybody care what he says? Why is anybody paying him to give speeches? He should be in prison. That's one of our tendencies. Another tendency is we get envious. I wish I had what he has. What? Why can't I have those things? Look at what David says here in Psalm 37.1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. He's going to say this three times. He knows us. You see it there in verse 1, fret not yourself. Look at verse 7 in the middle of the verse. Be still before the Lord, wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. David is saying, calm down. Don't be agitated about this. Don't be irritated by this. And then, and then he says it again a third time. In verse 8, the middle of the verse, refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. So, so three times in the first 11 verses, David says, don't be agitated about this. Don't be angry by this. And then look at what he says in, in the rest of verse 1 there. Be not envious of wrongdoers. So it's like, you know, there's two dangers for us. Don't get angry. Don't be envious. Why not, David? How, how am I supposed to counsel myself not to be angry Look at, or envious? Look at verse 2. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. They're going to fade like the grass. The season is going to change. The, the, the earth is going to roll over on its axis, and they're going to be gone. All their glory, all their flourishing, the chickens are going to come home to roost. The debts are going to, the, the collectors are going to come calling for the debts to be paid. They will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. There's a reference in that word wither. It's the same term that you have back in Psalm 1. Remember Psalm 1 says that the righteous man who meditates on the Torah day and night, in verse 3, his leaf does not wither. So there's, there's a way to look like you're flourishing and your leaf's going to wind up withering. And there's a way to flourish and your leaf won't wither. 
And then David says in verses 3 and 4, but, but this psalm is, is elaborately constructed. Uh, this is one of those psalms that it's, it's, as you can see from your bulletin, the way that things are, are matching one another, there's a, there's a chiastic structure here, which means it's in an X-shaped pattern with the ends matching and then the middle pieces matching, uh, matching and then it all centering on verse 22. This is also what's called an acrostic psalm which means that each new section is going to begin with the next letter of the alphabet. So verses 1 and 2, that's your letter A. Now we're to verses 3 and 4. Here's your letter B. This is what David says we need to do. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. You see the wicked seem to prosper. You see them seem to beat the rap. You see them seem to maybe even get away with murder. There was a There was a United States senator who recently died who, in a drunk driving accident, flipped a car. The car lands in the water. There's a woman in the car with him. He gets out of the car, exits the car, leaves that woman to die. And then he he lived the rest of his life as a United States senator, left that woman to die in the water. It's not hard to know who I'm talking about. Google Ted Kennedy, and, and, and you'll see it. And the Bible says, don't be angry about that. Don't fret yourself. Don't be envious. Trust in the Lord and do good. It's like David is saying, you need to worry about you. You need to trust the Lord to do justice, and you need to do good. And then he says, dwell in the land, and the ESV renders this, befriend faithfulness. Depending on what translation you've got, you might have a a variety of different renderings of that last phrase in verse 3, befriend faithfulness. Uh, The... the, um, The footnote in the ESV, footnote 3, at the bottom of the margin, if yours is numbered like mine, it says, or feed on faithfulness. The New King James renders this, feed on his faithfulness. So, so there, you know, there, I think, I think in poetry, there are often different connotations to, to words. And so one aspect of this is we feed on God's faithfulness. Another aspect of this, the, in, in Hebrew, the, the term that we're dealing with, it's, it's what's known as a homonym, you know. The word is spelled one way, but it has different meanings, and they're not really related to each other. So one of the meanings has to do with, with feeding or shepherding or pasturing, you know, being like a cow eating the, 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 the grass out in the pasture. Another meaning has to do with being a friend to somebody. That's why the ESV has befriend faithfulness. I think it's possible for a poet to intend multiple meanings in an ambiguous situation like this. So I would say, yeah, you ought to feed on faithfulness, and then you ought to cultivate faithfulness. I think that's how the the New American Standard uh, renders it. Cultivate. Work on your faithfulness. Steward it. Be like a shepherd with the faithfulness that's been entrusted to you and, and that you have toward others. And then feed on the faithfulness of God toward you. And then this famous statement here in verse 3. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let's start with this, ter- this first phrase, delight yourself in the Lord. This word is used in Isaiah 66, 11 to describe a nursing child delighting himself on his mother's milk. I don't know if you've seen this happen, if, you've, if you're married and your wife nursed, maybe you've seen this happen. These babies, they're, they're going crazy. They're, they're, they're so miserable, throwing a fit. And they come to their mother, 
And it's like the world is all of a sudden right in every way. And, and the child will almost moan with delight. Mm, just so delighted. This is, this is what the psalmist, this is what David is telling us to do. Delight yourself in the Lord like a nursing child with his mother. It's also used, this term is used to describe those rich people, refined people, who find pleasure in their, their fine food and drink, or their luxurious surroundings, or their stylish adornment. Maybe you've been around a foodie. I've, I've got a friend who's a foodie. You, take, you go to a meal with that guy, he's going to take his phone out and start taking pictures. He's got, he's got a journal where he writes down what he got from this particular place. He keeps track of all these things. I mean, he delights himself in this food. And David is saying, delight yourself in the Lord. This is how you deal with disappointment. I mean, uh, the Lord... Uh, the Lord is sometimes ironic with us. Here I am, I'm preparing to preach this this morning, and there are, there are disappointments happening all around me this morning. Um, it, 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 just, it, just in the process of getting out of bed and getting in the car to try to get to church. And it's like the Lord is challenging me, point after point, are you going to delight yourself in me, or are you going to be a hypocrite? Are you going to delight yourself in the Lord? This is what we must do. Then it says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And that's another one of these ambiguous statements, isn't it? It's ambiguous because you don't know if it means, does this mean I'm going to get what I want? Or does this mean I'm going to get new desires? And I'm going to be satisfied in those. And I think that's, that's, what, that's what we're to conclude here. If I delight myself in the Lord, I'm going to find that these worldly concerns that I have... They're going to fade away. And, and now what I want is God, and he's going to satisfy those desires. So we want to find pleasure in God the way that worldly people find pleasure in what satisfies them. And, and we want to delight ourselves in God and then cultivate these new desires. And, you know, reading, reading a statement like this, if you're like me, I think you're probably inclined to think, I need to hear more about this. Tell me more. How do I do this? How, how do I, what are my specific action steps for delighting myself in God? Every statement in this psalm is an action step, or at least every command in this psalm is an action step. So verse 1, don't fret yourself because of evildoers. Don't be envious of them. Know that they're going to fade and wither. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. This is what it means. This is how you go about delighting yourself in the Lord. So imagine verse 4, this statement, delight yourself in the Lord as a prism. And, and the light is shining into this prism, and it's being reflected, ref, refracted in all these different ways and all these different colors. And all those very colored rays of light going off in every different direction, that's all the statements in this psalm. And they all come out of delight yourself in the Lord. So Aleph, Beit, Gimel, ABC, uh, we're to, the, we're to the, the, the C line in verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. This is the kind of thing that we have to do when, when we're starting out on a new venture or we're, we're analyzing our lives and we're saying to ourselves, you know, Lord, 
if, I were, if I were evaluating this by worldly standards, it doesn't really look like this is working. But I'm going to commit my way to you. I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing what you've commanded. And I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to believe that you're going to act. Verse 6, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. God is going to vindicate his own. He's going to cause their righteousness to shine and their justice to be like the noonday sun. I, I think that these statements here in Psalm 37, 6 are, are at least in the background when Jesus says, let your light shine before men so that when they see your good deeds, they will praise your Father who is in heaven. We're, we're in a situation in our culture, where more and more people think that Christianity is not good, not good for the world. It's got a bad moral system. It's, 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 it, it results in people having distorted psychological opinions of themselves, particularly if they are, according to their, the world's way of thinking, particularly if they are born with certain proclivities or inclinations. Or just, Christianity is not good for those people. It's harmful. And, and I think... David is saying to us, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, he will act, he will bring forth your, he will prove to the world that actually, yes, this is good, and it will be like the noonday sun. David, it's like he knows us, you know, it's like he's been ha- hanging around with us, but it's not us, is it? It's, it's, it? This is common to man, this is common to humanity. It is so easy to get frustrated and be huffing and puffing and exasperated. And David says in verse 7, this is our D line, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. That word, same word from Psalm 1, whatever he does, he prospers. And, and our reaction is, Lord, this is supposed to be the, rea- the, the reward of the righteous, not the wicked. Don't fret yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Here's your next line in the Hebrew alphabet. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. If if we get agitated, if we get irritated, we get frustrated, what's going to happen? We're going to sin. And so David is saying, calm down, back off, Wait on the Lord. Trust him. Don't let yourself be carried into evil. Verse 9, for the evildoers shall be cut off. And and I think you ought to hear almost whispering in the back of your mind, he shall be like chaff that the wind drives away. He'll be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Look at verse 11. The meek shall inherit the land. Verse 22, those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. Over and over in this psalm, David promises, you walk with God, you wait on him, you will inherit the land. You don't, you're going to be cut off. It's it's. Repeated over and over and over. This is not works-based righteousness. Because the only thing that's going to enable you to do verse 9, wait for the Lord, is what? It's faith, isn't it? It's trust. God has said, this is the way things are. This is how I'm going to judge. And you believe him. 
So you wait on him. And as a result, you inherit the land. It's, it's, it's by grace through faith. David continues, next line in the Hebrew alphabet, verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. Gone. I'm listening to um, this biography of James Madison. And um, um, these, these two characters, in, in, as, as uh, Thomas Jefferson came into the presidency in, in the United States, um, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr were, were both hatching schemes to, in their own way, in different ways, take over the government. And then they, they get crossways with one another, and there's a duel, and Burr kills Hamilton. And then Burr goes off and, and comes up with this cockeyed scheme to try to take over the government, but it's not, I mean, maybe like seven months, gone. They're, they're, these guys are just totally off the scene, totally removed from any ability to do anything. They're trying to take over the government. Jefferson, Washington, Adam, these guys are all scared of what these guys are going to do. But they are, they're removed from the scene altogether. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. We're being asked to trust. Trust the Lord to do justice. And at the proper time, he will act. Verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the land. And then look at the rest of verse 11 and delight themselves. Same verb from verse 4, delight yourself. The meek, um, <clears throat> this word can be rendered all kinds of ways. The afflicted, the, um, now I think that's maybe behind Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, for they shall inherit the earth. This, is, this psalm is behind the Beatitudes. The meek shall inherit the land. The afflicted, uh, this word could be rendered the poor. It could be rendered the humble. I think all these connotations are, are relevant. The, the, the afflicted, those being persecuted by the, the, the strong, who, who seem, the proud who seem so strong, they're going to inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant shalom. They're going to enjoy God's goodness. They're going to be delighted in it. They're going to be delighted in the Lord. So verses 1 through 11 starts off this way, outcomes for the righteous and the wicked. Then the psalm ends this way also. Let's look at verses 34 through 40. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. Wait for the Lord. This keeps getting reiterated in the psalm, doesn't it? Wait for the Lord. He will act and keep this this word keep, it, it, has, it has the idea of uh, protect, guard, uh, hold it with, keep his way. How do we do that? We protect his way, we guard his way, we, we hold his way within ourselves. This is what we're trying to do. What's his way? It's the way of life he's commanded, the instructions that he's given to us. And, and we, need to, we need to set up uh, ways to protect ourselves so that we don't go off the way. And we need to protect our hearts so that we don't want to leave the way. Wait for the Lord and he will keep his way, and, and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. This, this phrase could be rendered, he will raise you up to inherit the land. I think it may hint at resurrection. Resurrection and, and, and the enjoyment of the fulfillment of the land of promise in the new heaven and new earth. 
you will look on, at verse 34, when the wicked are cut off. Verse 35, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. Maybe you've seen someone living this out. Just flamboyant person. Look at how successful I am. Somebody in our culture recently said, I have good words. I know words. I have good words. I mean, he, he's spreading himself like a green laurel tree. Verse 36, but he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. This, is, this ought to sound familiar. Look back at verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. Same, same language in both verses. Okay, so, so just believe. God's going to take care of the wicked. Verse 37, mark the blameless. And behold, the upright... For there's a future for the man of peace, the man of shalom. There's a future for the man of peace. But then look at the, look at the next verse. The transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The man of peace has a future. The future of the wicked is going to be cut off. And then verses 39 and 40. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. Time of trouble, the Lord is our stronghold. Disappointment, frustration, fear, the Lord is our stronghold. The Lord helps them, verse 40, and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Psalm 2, the end of the psalm, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this is all, this is those who are saved by faith. This is those who, who trust if, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, what we want to say to you is we don't want you to be cut off from the land. We want you to believe what God has said, and then we want you to heed what David says in this psalm when it says, turn from evil and do good, and then you'll inherit the land. You'll be delighted in the one who will satisfy. That's what we want for you. We don't want you to be aligned with those, identified in verses 12 through 15 and verses 32 and 33, where we read about the violence of the wicked. So we looked at verses 1 through 11, look at verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. This is happening in our culture today. There are people who don't like it that, that, we uphold, that we hold to what the Bible says about all kinds of things. Creation, uh, human sexuality, marriage. You, you, you want to see somebody gnash their teeth? You start talking about those things. Start talking about creation. Start talking about God ordaining marriage between one man, one woman. Start talking about God assigning your biology that corresponds to your sex as male or female. People are going to start gnashing their teeth. And, and they might not be literally doing what's stated here, but metaphorically, metaphorically it's happening. Look, look, at, look at what he says here, uh, verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. Skip over verse 13. We'll come back to that. Look at verse 14. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. But then look back at verse 13. 
The Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. I think it's correct that there's only one other place in the Psalms, maybe one other place in the Bible, where the Lord laughs at the wicked. You know what I'm thinking of? Psalm 2. Uh, he describes the, the plots and the conspiracies of the wicked in verses 1 through 4, and then he says, the one who sits in the heavens laughs. This is God's response. The Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. And then these, these schemes, these weapons that have been pulled out and, and gotten ready to go after the righteous, look at verse 15. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. God will make it so that what they design to use against winds up harming them, and all their best equipment fails. So there's the violence of the wicked in verses 12 through 15. Look at verse 32 and 33. Same thing. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power. This, this makes, every time I read this, I think of uh, that statement in 1 Samuel when it says, Saul sought David every day, but God did not give him into his hand. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. There may be wicked courts in this world that condemn the righteous. But at the final assize, when we are brought to trial, there will be vindication for those who have walked with God. So there's the violence of the wicked. Look at God's provision for the righteous in verse, verses 16 through 20 and then verses 25 through 31. This is what, at, at this point, I, I would encourage you to, to, to pause here and think to yourself, God, help me to believe that you are my father. And, and if you had a bad earthly father, I mean, I know that, that this is the case with some people, You're, you, and you don't like it or, or it doesn't resonate with you to think of a, a loving uh, father who would provide for you, ask the Lord to overwrite all those bad connotations with, with these, these connotations of a father who is what a, what a father ought to be, a father who will protect his own and provide for his own and lead his own into righteousness. What, what David is talking about here is the way that God is a father to his, to his people. And, and as, we, as we approach this, approach this let me also in, invite you to, to think about the way that what we're inclined to do. What we're inclined to do, you know, we all have these basic needs. We, we need food and we need uh, safety from the environment and from bad people. So we need provision and safety. Once we have our basic needs met, we get ourselves clothed, we get a place to, to shelter at night, uh, we get some food to eat. What do we do? We look around and see how we've done with comparison to others. That's what we're inclined to do. His house is nicer than mine. His clothes are sharper than mine. His food tastes better than I want what he's got. And, and David here is teaching the righteous how to, be, how to be happy in response to that human tendency. So verses 1 and 2, don't be bothered by the wicked. They're going to be judged. Verses 3 and 4, God can bring you true delight. Verses 5 and 6, to get that delight, you need to trust God and wait on him. Verse 7, be still before God. Wait, don't be bothered. Verses 8 and 9, stop being angry. Don't do the evil it would prompt. Verses 10 and 11, the meek are going to inherit the earth. 
Verses 12 through 15, the violent only harm themselves. And now verse 16. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Better to have just what you need and be righteous than have all the plunder the wicked possess. Why? Look at the rest of the verse. Or verse 17. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. It's like there are arms in view in both lines of that, that statement, aren't there? The, arms, the wicked have their arms broken. The righteous are upheld in the everlasting arms. Verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless. This is like Psalm 1-6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. That word heritage refers to the plot of ground that an Israelite would inherit in the promised land. So it's like this verse is saying, God is going to, he's going to bless the possessions, the, the, the plot of ground that the righteous have. Verse 19, they are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. In the days of famine, they have abundance. If you're satisfied in God, if, if you are delighting yourself in the Lord, the little that you have to survive in a famine will seem like a feast. It will seem like an abundance. David returns to this down in verse 25, where he says, this is a, this is a testimony. David makes an observation here, and then he gives a testimony. He says in verse 25, I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. What David is saying is God doesn't forsake his children. And God doesn't leave his children unprovided for. That's what kind of father he is. And then because they've been loved this way, because they've experienced God's grace and kindness and provision, they have this open-hearted generosity to others. Verse 26, he is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. And so in response, David says there in verse 27, turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. So verse 26 the children of the righteous man become a blessing. Verse 28, the children of the wicked will be cut off. So this is not, this is not only about you and your life. One of, the, one, of the things, one of the things that characterizes the wicked is that they're concerned only for themselves. And the Bible is saying, why don't you lift up your eyes and look to your posterity Look at how your actions and your choices are going to affect your children. Do you want your children to be a blessing or do you want them cut off? In part, it depends on how you act. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Now, if, if, in all this, if we say, how are we supposed to become righteous? What do we do at this point? How, how do we cultivate this? It's like in verse 30, David says, go back and read Psalm 1. 
because he says here in verse 30, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. And that, that word utters there is the same word that's translated meditates. On his law, he meditates back in Psalm 1-3. The, the blessed is a man who doesn't do these things, but on the, the Torah, the law of God, he meditates day and night. But now the mouth of the righteous meditates, mutters. That's what that word meditates means. It means mutters. The mouth of the righteous mutters wisdom. What's he doing? He's quoting scripture. He's going over his Bible verses, and his mouth is moving, and he's kind of muttering as he recites them. That's what he's doing. The mouth of the righteous mutters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. Why is your mouth doing this? Why is your tongue doing this? Look at verse 31. The law of his God, the Torah, is in his heart. His steps do not slip. You want to become a person who's righteous, somebody who delights in the law? You need to memorize God's word and meditate on it. Uh, reiterate the challenge from last week. Make the last thing you look at at the end of the day a Bible verse. Go over it every day until you got it memorized. And then, and then when you're challenged, when you face difficulties, let the Bible start talking to you. The Bible started talking to me this morning. You better delight yourself in the Lord or you're going to be a hypocrite when you get in that pulpit this afternoon. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. My wife, after the sermon, she's going to say, what, rushed, what frustrated you this morning? Verses 20 through 24. Some of it she knows already. Verses 21 through 24. Look at, look at verse 21. The wicked are unconcerned for others, and they're unconcerned about God. The wicked borrows but does not pay back because they don't care. They don't care about you. They don't care that that was your money. They don't care that you might need your money that you loaned them. They don't care about you. And they don't think God's going to judge them. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. This word generous, it's, it's really the word grace. The righteous graces and gives. It's the same word translated grace over and over again in the Psalms. The righteous is gracious because he's experienced God's grace. Verse 22, for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Now, there, there's a lot. We could, we could go into a lot of deep things right here, considering those blessed by the Lord and those cursed by the Lord. We could ask all kinds of questions, and, and I don't think we need to do that. I think what we need to do is we need to say, Look, the Bible holds out before us blessing and curse. It's like, it's like Moses says in Deuteronomy. Look, I'm setting before you today the way of life and the way of death. I want you to choose life. We, we could go into a lot of you know, theological issues about those blessed by the Lord and those cursed. We don't need to worry about that. What we need to worry about is, am I going to choose the way that leads to God's blessing or am I going to choose the way that leads to cursing? That's what's before us. Verse 23, the steps are of a man are established by the Lord. In, in one way, this says that every step you take is under God's absolute sovereignty. But then look at what it goes on to say. When he delights in his way. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Who's the he? It is really unclear. And I think, there's, I think there's intended ambiguity here. Who's delighting in the way? Well, if it's the Lord, 
delighting in the man's way because he's walking in God's way, well then, yeah, the steps of the man are established. But if it's the man who's delighting in God's way, then, yes, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. I think there's intended ambiguity here, and we can affirm all these things that I've just articulated. Yeah, if you delight in God's way, God is going to establish your steps. Even if it doesn't look like it to worldly concerns or or ways of evaluating, this psalm is saying, trust the Lord, wait on him, and you're going to inherit the land. If it's the other way, yes, the Lord Lord does establish steps. He blesses people, and he delights in them. Amen. Praise God. And then verse 24, about these righteous people, these people who have heeded this counsel in verse 27, turn away from evil and do good. They've heeded the counsel in verse 40. They've taken refuge in the Lord. These people, verse 24 says, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds the righteous. None of us is going to be perfect. None of us is going to be able to attain to a level of perfect obedience. But if you walk with God and you blow it and you repent of your sin, you will find that your life has not been cast headlong. You're not cast out, disregarded, damned. You'll find the Lord upholding you and helping you up and helping you to turn from evil and do good and wanting to get back on the right path. This psalm, Psalm 37, it anticipates the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. I think you can take, you can take Psalm 37 and you can go over and read the Beatitudes that were read early in the service and you can say, Jesus is just reiterating the message of David. David speaks of those who are going to inherit the land. This informs Jesus saying the meek are going to inherit the earth. David speaks of how the Lord provides for the righteous. Jesus says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. David speaks of the Lord bringing out vindication like the noonday sun. And Jesus says that light is not to be put under a bushel. And and this teaching in Psalm 37 is going to find its culmination and completion and fulfillment when Jesus comes and cuts off the wicked from the land and establishes the righteous upon it. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would teach us what it means to delight in you. And we pray that you would woo us away from all of the the traps, the snares, the world's enticements that would lead us to, to fall into a pit or to be trapped by the iron jaws of some satanic snare and have our lives ruined, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to indulge ourselves in your goodness. Cause these words to stay with us. Counsel us, Lord, make these words roll around in our minds to keep us from being those who give up or who wander from your way. Help us to take refuge in you, our stronghold. Help us to believe that you are 
our Father, that you will never abandon us. You will never forsake us. You will never fail to provide for us. We entrust ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.